The scripture reading for this morning is from Matthew chapter 7, Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. And if you have a church Bible that you picked up on your way in, it'll be found on page 812. So Matthew chapter 7, beginning with verse 1, where you read Jesus saying, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. May the Lord bless the reading and now the preaching of God's word. Well, I want to extend my uh, personal word of uh, gratitude for the Corinth group being here. We're so delighted to have you guys. And also wanted to say a word of thanks to Brandon Visser, who's one of the members of that group, who uh, is their worship leader uh, at Corinth, and he was uh, serving us this morning. So thank you, Brandon, for doing that. We appreciate you guys being here. We are eager to uh, serve the Lord together in the city. So uh, let's open in a word of prayer before we get started this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that we get to sit before it each week. What a privilege that is. We are grateful for that Um, in a land where we are absolutely rich and filled with good food. uh, There are people that do not have Bible translations. They do not have the word of God. They never heard it. They don't even know of such a thing as a Bible. And here we sit with literally hundreds of Bibles across our laps. We're rich. We're filled. Oh God, we pray that that would affect the way we live. That we won't just merely, just academically open up the word, run through a few motions, be very mechanical about it, but that your spirit would come. We pray this morning that your spirit would come in this sermon, in this preaching, and that we would have open hearts that are receptive to you, that we would be challenged by your word, that we would be so absolutely receptive and willing to be corrected in any area that you want to put your finger on. So come, anoint this time. We pray for your rich blessing upon it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is the second uh, week in our series that we've started called Twisted, some of the most popular yet misused verses in the Bible. And in this series, Pastor Mark said uh, last week that we're not, the point of this series is, is not really to beat up on other people's views or interpretations of the Bible. Uh, it's certainly not to make fun of anybody else's interpretations, uh, even our cultures. Uh, that's not the point of this series. The point of this series is to teach us how to read the Bible carefully. I mean, if people come to wild, wild interpretations, they get there for a reason. Um, presumably they don't know how to read the Bible carefully. And so we want to help you to think through how we understand some of these misapplied portions of scripture. Now, most Christians have a favorite verse of scripture. I mean, if if we stopped and asked you, you would probably raise your hand and say, you know, this is my favorite verse, my favorite book of the Bible. But what you may be surprised to learn is that most non-Christians have a favorite verse as well. 
judge not lest you be judged. And ironically, the verse that they love the most is the verse that they understand the least. I mean, probably never has a passage of scripture been so utterly abused and misunderstood and misapplied as this one. Non-Christians, many misguided believers as well, use this text to denounce any and all who attempt to criticize or to expose or to the sins and shortcomings or doctrinal errors of others. I mean, we, we dare not speak ill of almost anything. Adultery, gossip, fornication, abortion, homosexuality, other religions, without, unless we're willing to incur the wrath of multitudes who are convinced that the Jesus whom they, listen, despise and reject said, judge not. The irony, of course, is that in judging us for making a judgment, they violate the very commandment for which they hold us accountable to. The common sentiment of our day is, don't judge me, because if you do, God is going to judge you. And that's what Jesus said. And Jesus is your boy, right? Or something to that effect. Now, we need to acknowledge that there's a conflict between the Bible and our culture at this point. Our culture holds that tolerance is the highest virtue. It sees tolerance as the non-judgmental acceptance of others and their actions. But the irony is that advocates of tolerance tend to be some of the least tolerant people on the planet when it comes to their interaction with Christians. I mean, they can't tolerate intolerance to anything which makes them intolerant. And they judge people that make judgments which makes them judgmental. Also, these same people disagree with most of the Bible, and yet they end up giving Matthew 7-1 a hearty amen. I don't believe the Bible. It's not inspired. I don't trust it. But man, Matthew 7-1, praise God for that verse. And after all, this seems to fit the sentiment of our age. You know, we live in an age of acceptance and tolerance. We're told not to make moral judgments of others. You know, the motto of our age is, anything goes. People dislike us if we're dogmatic and convinced. And we're not allowed to evaluate the lifestyle of others. So what do people say? They say, don't call me out on the way I'm living. I have the right to do what I want to do. And you're in no position to make a judgment about whether that's right or wrong. And the reality is for us, as, as the church, to be a Christian under the authority of God's word puts us at odds with what is considered to be right behavior in our culture. I mean, we just have to just own up to that. We are at odds with our culture on this point. But I just want to remind us this morning that as Christians, it is far more important that we are faithful to God's word than that we are tolerant or viewed as tolerant in our culture. We have to remember that as God's people, we are not to be intimidated by culture. Think of the early church. Think about their boldness and their courage. But we are to be driven by the truth. But since we don't want to be viewed as narrow-minded bigots, Christians, hear me, end up compromising what God's word clearly tells us. And our challenge is to avoid that tendency because the pressure is on big time, especially for your kids who are growing up in our public schools. The problem is that Matthew 7, 1 sounds like music to our ears. We hear it all the time. 
Who are you to tell me anything about my life? You don't know me. You, you haven't lived my life. And so when we hear Jesus say these words, judge not, it almost seems like an affirmation of our culture on this point. But is Jesus really affirming our culture of tolerance? Is that what Jesus is doing here? See, questions like Matthew 7, 1, questions, questions make Matthew 7, 1 um, a bit uncomfortable for us. When we think about judgment, that may, it makes us uncomfortable. What is Jesus getting at? But on the other hand, while we're uncomfortable, to hear Jesus condemn judgmentalism is something I think we all appreciate, isn't it? I mean, I don't like judgmental people. I don't like being judgmental myself. I don't like that in me. I certainly don't like to be around judgmental people. I doubt you do either. And so when we see Jesus putting the smack down on judgmentalism, there's a part of us that says, I'm, I'm grateful for that. Because we don't need any more sort of judgmentalism in, in the culture, especially in the Christian church. So there's a part of us that says, that's good, I like that. And so that's right. But while it's right to take Jesus' teaching here as an indictment of judgmentalism, it's not right to take it as an affirmation of the moral relativism of our culture. That takes it too far. See, the error here of judge not is that they've taken a good principle and pressed it to its absolute end to, to, to where it becomes something that's totally foreign to what Jesus was actually saying. And so I want to show us this morning what Jesus is really teaching in this text. And to do that, I want to start with a couple of clarifications up front. Uh, first of all, Jesus is not saying that we're not allowed to pass any sort of judgment. Okay, judge not does not mean judge nothing. We make, all, we make important judgments all the time. Who gets accepted at a certain school? Judgments about hiring certain people. Judgments about promotions. Judgment about what cars to drive. What, what house to purchase. I mean, we just make judgments. That's just part of life. And John Stott says, The command judge not is not a requirement to be blind. And he's referring to sin. Not a requirement to be blind, but rather a plea to be generous. In other words, attitude is what Jesus is after, not judgment in general. So what did Jesus mean when he said, judge not? I think the answer lies in the context, and we'll see that in just a minute. But first, if you study this word judge, the word kreno in Greek, to judge, you'll actually see that it carries a very technical, legal sense. It carries the idea of to condemn, to judge as guilty. It connotes condemnation and fault finding or having a harsh and hypocritical spirit. And so here, Jesus is commanding us to essentially avoid judgmentalism. You know, we're not, a, we're not to be passing final judgment, especially final judgment on people. That job belongs to the Lord. Uh, we're not in the condemning business. That business is not for us. We don't have an exhaustive God-like knowledge of people. I mean, we can judge what people do, but we cannot judge why they do it. We can judge what people say, but we cannot judge why they say it. Only God can judge the hidden secrets of the heart. We are to leave that to him. I mean, we don't even know our own heart, much less the heart of someone else. So in Matthew 7, we see that, you know, we're not to be hypocritical fault finders. 
We're not to be spiritual vultures who are sort of flying around looking for the sins of others so that we can swoop in for our daily feast on somebody else's sin. But people live that way. And the point of this text is to show the real sin of judgmentalism and how it is to be broken in our life. So Matthew 7 actually ends up being an immensely practical and penetrating portion of Scripture. So let me encourage us up front to just forget about everybody else in this room. All right? The worst thing you can do this morning is to be thinking about somebody else. When the point of the text is not to be judgmental. So we want to be thinking about ourselves this morning. And for the rest of this message, I want to unpack the real essence of Matthew 7. Not our culture in its view, but the real essence. And I want to do that under three simple headings. A description of judgmentalism, an illustration of judgmentalism, and a prescription for judgmentalism. Okay, A description. First of all, Jesus is pretty straightforward. He comes right out in verse 1 and says, Do not judge. Jesus is not telling us, as we've said, to throw discernment to the wind in favor of moral relativism. He's after something much deeper than just mere tolerance, as our culture would like to suggest. In fact, the command, judge not, would be inherently contradictory. Think about this. If Jesus was intending for us to dispense with judging altogether. We know that because look down at verse 6. Jesus says, do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before a swan. Question, how do you, how do you know whether someone's a dog or a swan? You've got to make a judgment. Jesus is calling us to that. Look down at verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come in sheep's clothing, but they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. You will what? You will know them. False prophets, false teachers, how do you know? You've got to make a judgment. Got to make a judgment. So clearly Jesus is saying you need to be discriminating enough to see the difference. He's not condemning judging. He's condemning judgmentalism. He's not condemning sound judgment. He's not saying, especially not saying, that we don't have the right to call sin, sin. That's where our culture goes wrong. Of course we have the right to call sin, sin. Evil should be called evil and sin must be identified as sin. See, what Jesus is blasting here is a certain kind of sin that actually we all have a tendency to as well, which is namely the sin of self-righteous judgmentalism. I'm guilty of that. We're, we're guilty of that. John's thought is helpful here. He says, judging in this context does not mean assessing people critically. It means assessing them harshly. The fault-finding critic is the one who enjoys seeking out people's failings. He puts the worst construction on their motives and is ungenerous toward their mistakes. And the sad thing is, the church is not immune to this. The church oozes often a critical spirit. It it is full of sinners, and therefore it's full of people that have a critical spirit. In fact, it's so prevalent in the church that one would think that some Christians view a critical spirit as one of the spiritual gifts to be exercised. For the good of others. But it's not. It's not a spiritual gift. It hurts. It tears down the church. In Matthew 7, Jesus is speaking about the Pharisees who are experts in in their self-righteous, hypocritical judgment of others. But this has great application to all of us who have a tendency to do the same. The problem is when we try to play the role of God and we can start condemning people. 
Just to be clear, the role of judge, capital J, judge, is already taken by Jesus. Jesus says so himself in Matthew 5.22. He says, the Father has entrusted all judgment to me. He's the boss. Jesus is pointing out actually how serious it is. If you're a judgmental person and you condemn people in a way that is reserved for God alone, you have reason to fear because... If we do that, we're usurping God's role as the only lawgiver and judge. James put it like this. He said, there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. So who are you to judge your neighbor? So the implication here is that God's judgment of us is not only certain, but it's absolutely fair. Notice verse 2. Jesus says, for by the standard you judge, you will be judged. And by the measure you use will be the measure you receive. In other words, God will measure us like scales in the marketplace. He will put you in the same scales you use with reference to other people. And what will happen is that even by your own standard of measurement, you will find yourself to be a failure. Because your standard, even your standard, is too strict for yourself. So, here's an interesting question. What do we typically judge other people for? I would say that we typically judge other people for the same things that we do ourselves. The things that we do the most. We are guilty of the very, th- of the very things that we are most vociferous and loudmouth about. It's shocking how we do this. We go around just pointing our finger at somebody for doing something that an hour ago we did ourselves. The hypocrisy in human nature. And by doing that, John Stott has a really incisive um, observation here. He says, by doing that, we experience the pleasure of self-righteousness without having to endure the pain of repentance. This is really interesting. Listen to this. What happens is we see a fault in somebody else and rather than taking a path of obedience and repentance, you know, repenting of that sin, we attack somebody else for that very sin and then we have some kind of perverse sense that somehow the sin has been dealt with and I never had to incur the guilt for it. So I'll attack somebody else for what I've done and feel better about it because I've attacked somebody and judged them for the sin that I'm guilty of. And God is just saying, Jesus is saying, God's going to judge us for that. There's a principle here of reciprocity, and it's all over the Sermon of the Mount. You know, there's give and take principle. Jesus says in chapter 5, if you're not merciful, God will not show you mercy. We, We put this in Proverbs. You know, what do we say? What comes around, goes around. What's good for the goose is good for the gander. There's a principle of reciprocity here. Jesus says it again in Matthew 6. If you don't forgive others, your father will not forgive you. So this is not new for Jesus. Jesus is, he's just saying the same thing in Matthew 7. Jesus, this is fair. This is perfectly fair. That's why this text is, it's a bit weighty, honestly. Now, just to be clear, Jesus isn't preaching salvation by good behavior. In case anybody's thinking that. All right, Jesus never preaches that. Uh, C.S. Lewis said once, he said, if you're content with being nice, then you're still a rebel to God. 
So goodness isn't the issue. Jesus isn't saying be nice and you can go to heaven. He's saying that the judgmental person is proving that he is unwilling to repent. And it's that refusal to repent that actually shuts him out of the kingdom. So we need to be really clear at the outset how serious this is. I mean, it would be better to avoid judgment altogether than to be harsh and condemning. James says judgment without, is without mercy to him who has shown no mercy. But if we choose to be merciful, then James says mercy triumphs over judgment. So that's how Jesus starts chapter 7. He rebukes this spirit of judgmentalism. And then to clarify what he means by judgmentalism, he gives us this great illustration. It's one of the portions of the Bible that is funny. It's humorous. It's like comedic. Jesus goes from serious talk to a comedy. Right in the same text, he goes to this lighthearted moment. It's probably the only lighthearted moment in this chapter. And Jesus uses a metaphor. And it's funny. And uh, Charles Spurgeon said that the humor in Jesus was a sign of his humanity. Uh, Certainly Jesus knew how to be funny. And I think at this point, that's what he's getting after. He's making a striking point. He's talking about hypocritical judgment. He's talking about self-righteous judgment. The kind of judgment that accuses people, the very things we're guilty of. It's like the chain-smoking mom who says, you're not allowed to smoke. Stop. It's just pure hypocrisy. What's the proverb? People that live in glass houses should not throw stones. And so Jesus comes right out and he uses the word hypocrites in verse 5. And he points out two components of this kind of self-righteous hypocrisy. Look at verse 3. Let me show you the first component. Say, okay, are you a self-righteous hypocrite? You know, we're, at, we're testing ourselves this morning, right? All right, so here's two components. Number one, verse three, it's right here, ignorance. Ignorance. But you do not notice the log in your own eye. You just don't see it. You're ignorant to it. This, this is your everyday run-of-the-mill self-deception, a person who's oblivious to himself. He does not notice the plank in his own eye. The point is we often do not see who we really are. Now, our wife, our husband, our children, somebody else will see us sometimes. And we just think, man, we're doing great. We're doing well. And we're not seeing ourselves for who we are. And this explains, this lack of self-awareness explains why Jesus calls such people blind in the Bible. See, blindness doesn't see darkness. Blindness sees nothing. A seeing person once asked a blind man, he said, what's it like to be blind? I mean, is it like closing your eyes really tight and walking around in a room and, and, you know, and just trying to just get somewhere? Is that what it's like? And he said, no. It's like trying to look out the back of your head. It's impossible. It's totally futile. But hear this. Spiritual blindness is actually worse than that. Because a person that's spiritually blind doesn't even know he's blind. He's blind to his blindness. A physically blind person at least knows he can't see, but a spiritually blind person thinks he sees when he can't. That's a far more serious condition. And that lack of self-awareness leads us to be harsh and condemnatory to other people. Here's a great illustration. Just flip over to Hebrews 5 for a second. Hebrews 5 is a brilliant illustration of this. Look at verse 1, Hebrews 5. It says, 
For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Now listen, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for the other people. That's a great illustration of this text. The reason why a high priest can deal gently is that he's self-aware. He says, I am no different than these people. You know, I'm a, I may be a high priest, I may be a pastor, but I'm a sinner. I'm a sheep as well. I'm no different than these people. If anything, I'm worse. And that allows him to be gentle rather than harsh. The implication is that when a man is unaware of his own weakness, what happens? He becomes harsh with others. Harsh and hypocritical people are not self-aware. They are ignorant to their own sin. Now back to Matthew 7. The second commandment, the second excuse me, component to self-righteousness is arrogance. Look at verse 4. Okay, This is where Jesus gets funny. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye? Now what's the point Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying, you have this huge log in your eye. And you're walking around and you're saying, hey, dude, you got, you, you're messed up, man. I mean, you're, dude, you are so messed up. You got, you got some stuff to clean up in your life, man. And Jesus is saying, this is ludicrous. This is absolutely crazy. And you're so convinced, man, and you say it with boldness. Dude, you're, Will, you're messed up, man. <laughs> and you're happy to condemn people in that condition. And Jesus is making a point. He's saying, if you act like that, you, you're, this is saying something about not only your ignorance, but your arrogance and your self-righteousness. I mean, we think that we can see the flaws in other people with accuracy. But we have this huge plank hanging out of our own eye. And it's comical. It's a laugh. So there's a mixture here of ignorance and arrogance in self-righteous people. In fact... One leads to the other. Because we're so ignorant to our own sin, we operate under the assumption that we're actually better than we really are. And because of that, we relate to other people from a position of superiority. So ignorance actually leads to arrogance and then superiority. I don't have a problem. I just see your problem. I don't have a problem, but I see your problem. And we have this fatal tendency to exaggerate the faults of others and minimize the gravity of our own. And all this starts with ignorance and it escalates right into arrogance. And so in Matthew 7, Jesus condemns this type of judgmentalism. And he's saying that it comes from an absurd insensitivity to the plank that is protruding from our own face while we go around pointing out the specks in other people. One of the most prominent characteristics of a critical spirit is that it causes us to make issues of non-essential things. Like judging the spirituality of a couple by how they discipline their children. Or the school they put their kids in. Or what version of the Bible they use. Or their style of clothes. Or whether their shirt is tucked in or not. 
their standard of living, the cars they drive, the music they listen to, the food they eat. Are they vegan? Do they eat all organic food? Surely they're not putting processed foods in their body. They're feeding their kids that bread. Do they vaccinate their children? Do they not vaccinate their children? And on and on the list goes. And here's what happens. As Christians, we have this tendency to to moralize our preferences and then create artificial spirituality. That's crazy. Well, this is what we're doing in our house. Great. Enjoy that. Do that with freedom. That's your job. You have license and freedom to do that. But don't make that a law for some other Christian family. We get ourselves in problem. Romans 14 says, Who are you to judge the servant of another before his own master he stands or falls? And then later in the passage, he says, Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. And then the point is, be quiet. You know, be totally convinced. Whatever is done from, whatever is not done from faith is sin. So if you can't do that in faith, then don't do it. If you can do that in faith, then do it. But the point is, after you've come to that determination, be quiet. Don't stick your finger in somebody else's face and say, you're not doing that right, man. I mean, this is a problem that we have. But here's the thing. Despite these words, we have critical spirits in the church and it's devastating. I mean, it's the look out of a corner of a person's eye. It's the cold shoulder. And, and, and sometimes people are sitting there and they're just like, what have I done? But I feel like I'm being judged, but I don't know what I've done. Listen, people wilt in that atmosphere because it produces a culture where people trust no one and they start suspecting things about everyone. You just just become afraid to show up. Somebody's going to judge me about something, you know? Um, And and may we never, ever be a church like that. I mean, I want us to be the most loving and redemptive people that we can possibly be. We want to be a healing context. Somebody comes in, man, they are tatted up from head to toe. Piercings everywhere. Clothes. Somebody comes in, I mean, immorally dressed. I mean, what's the, we say, we're not saying, hey, we're promoting, we're promoting immodesty. But what we're saying is, what do you expect a non-Christian to do? They don't have our values. And so John Owen said it this way. He said, the nature and end of judgment must be redemptive, not vindictive for healing and not destruction. How quickly do we burn bridges because we go right after somebody without being redemptive and gracious in our posture toward them. So we've seen what Jesus means when he says don't judge. And we've seen an illustration of that, a comedic illustration of that. And then thirdly and finally, he gives us a prescription uh, for judgmentalism. Jesus is going to help us here. Okay, This is Dr. Jesus, and, and, he, and he's way better than Dr. Phil. He actually gives us some real solid, helpful stuff. And he's going to say, all right, I, I've looked at your situation. You got, it, you got a disease um, and, you, and, and you got a plank protruding from your eye and you're a judgmental, self-righteous person. And so we're going to take care of your uh, planktitude problem and this plankism and we're going to fix it. And I'm going to tell you how to do it. And here's how to do it. Um, he's going to give it to us right here in verse 5. Okay. He says, first... 
Take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now notice, Jesus doesn't say, never confront another person for his sin. Okay? I mean, what's the second half of the verse say? Then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of his eye. So he's not saying don't confront sin ever. He's not saying swing to the opposite end and just sit there passively and watch people just sin. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying there's a priority here. The first thing you do is begin with yourself. First do this and then do that. You can remove specks, but only after you've removed your plank. You can see another person clearly only when that huge plank in your eye is taken out. So take the log out. Get rid of that first. This is a call to personal holiness and integrity. And Jesus says later in the New Testament, later, uh, in fact, in, in this uh, section of scripture, he says, your eye is the lamp of your body. And when your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it's bad, the body's full of darkness. That's a good parallel here. He's talking about the eye. And now that doesn't mean that we can never help another person until we're sinless. So let's not get that in our minds. Certainly Jesus isn't calling for perfection. But he's calling here for a general lifestyle of godliness and repentance. To correct other men, what do you need? You need integrity and you need credibility. I mean, here's the thing. You've got to have another man's conscience if you're going to confront him about his sin. And what I mean by that is that guy needs to say, the guy telling me about my sin is a man that I respect. And there's an integrity behind his life. You've got to have his conscience. Otherwise, you're not going to help him. And how do you, here's the thing, how do you get his conscience? We've well, got to be full of integrity and credibility. And here's the thing, true credibility leads to true influence. So it's almost really, an on, honestly, an exercise in futility to try to correct somebody if you don't have credibility. Because you're just kind of wasting your time because you're just going to look and just say, thanks, appreciate you saying that, if they're humble. And then they're just going to be like, that guy is a hypocrite. There's no credibility there. And so that's a problem for us. So Jesus isn't calling us to be sinless, but he is calling us to be holy. And, it's, and this is the crucial point. We must do that. We must correct people in a way that sees ourselves as an even greater sinner than the one that we're correcting. And we've got to have genuine humility and understanding of our own hearts. Now, just to be clear, Jesus is interested in both plank removal and speck removal. He's interested in both. So he's not just thinking about one here. And John's thought says this. He says, a bit of dirt in the eye does not belong there. Even if it's a speck, it's usually painful and sometimes dangerous. And to leave it there and make no attempt to remove it would hardly be consistent with brotherly love. So we should be interested in removing splinters. I don't like sawdust in my eye and it's not good for me. And we want to help people. And so we should feel the freedom to correct, not in a condemning way, but in a discerning way, not in a destructive way, but in a helpful way. So we can say to our friend, we say to him, you're stuck and I'm here to help you. And this is a wreck. But by the grace of God, I want to help you climb out of this situation. That's what we say. The point is, in order to do that, we have to start with ourselves. And when we don't, if you don't start with yourself and you go to correct somebody, often correction will turn into confrontation. I mean, I'm sure you've experienced, as I have, Situations become confrontational when 
when we, when we correct people not from a position of integrity, Jesus' idea here is to be as critical of ourselves as we are of others and as generous to others as we are to ourselves. So here's, a, here's another practical question. How do you know when you've crossed the line into what, what Jesus is saying here on judgmentalism? Okay, because it's great to talk about judgmentalism, but I mean, how do you really know when you've stepped over the line? Uh, let me give you a little bit of guidance here. Um, I, I would say this way. You know you've crossed the line when you become impatient and you say, why haven't you changed already? Or you become surprised. I'm so shocked at you. Or you become incredulous. <laughs> I just don't see how in the world you could struggle with that. Or you get angry. I am so sick of this. What is wrong with you? Or you become defeatist. You'll never change. It's hopeless. You're hopeless. I think those are some pretty good indications. And if that goes on long enough, what do we do? We end up writing people off altogether and become completely non-redemptive in our approach. You just say, I'm done with you. You know, I'm just done. I'm done. I'm not going to go forward with this anymore. And that's exactly what Jesus doesn't want us to do. He wants us to love other people and to do it from a position of holiness and integrity. We are to love each other. So love is the issue. All right. Now, Compare all that we've been talking about with this clarion call from, from the New Testament, okay? I'm about to talk about love here, all right? So we've got judgmentalism. Now let's just, let's just pit these things against each other for a second. Let's juxtapose these. Listen to this. The Bible tells us to exhort one another, to wash one another's feet, to be devoted to one another, to give preference to one another, to be of the same mind to one another, to accept one another, to care for one another, to bear one another's burdens, to be kind to one another, to forgive one another, to speak to one another in psalms, in hymns, in spiritual songs, to be subject to one another, to regard one another as more important than yourself, to not lie to one another, teach one another, encourage one another, comfort one another, be at peace within one another, pursue one another, do good to one another, do not speak against one another, confess your faults to one another, pray for one another, be hospitable to one another, clothe yourself with humility toward one another. And why all this? Because this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So that's powerful, really powerful in light of this context. And we've seen the problem of judgmentalism. We've seen the illustration of it and the prescription for it. So let me leave you this morning with four practical steps and some gospel hope. Okay, four steps to defeating judgmentalism in our own lives. And I'm just going to list them. I'm not going to unpack them. I'm just going to say them one, two, three, four. Number one, put away your own judgmental spirit, which means you have to be aware of it. Put it away. We are told to put away the old man and to put on the new. Number two, remember that you will be judged by the same standard that you judge with. Number three, examine your own life first. Examine your own life first. And number four, finally, Gently correct others with integrity and holiness of life.
Well, where does that leave us? That leaves us with verse 6. And verse 6 is a little set off in the text. So it's like the, 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 the folks who put together the, at least the ESV were wondering, does that go with verses 1 through 5? Or is that kind of part of another section? Or what's the deal here? I think it goes right with it. And, and I think that it's a powerful section of scripture. Verse 6 says, Do not give what is holy to dogs or throw your pearls before pigs. Otherwise, they will trample them under their feet and turn around and tear you to pieces. And you may not see this at first glance, but I think there's a lot of gospel hope in that verse. When Jesus talks about dogs and pigs, he's talking about people in general. And... In Palestine, pigs and dogs were looked down upon. Uh, They were dirty and they were domesticated. And the word pearl in the Gospels represents the gospel of the kingdom. We see this from Matthew 13, where Jesus talks about the gospel as the pearl of great price. And so Jesus is talking about applying the gospel to people in general, dogs and pigs. And, and, And when we give them the gospel What do they do? When you freely distribute the gospel at Smothers Park this afternoon, what do people do with that message? They trample it underfoot. The word picture is vivid. If you try to give a pearl to a pig, it's not able to receive it as food. Pigs don't like pearls, especially when they're hungry. And if you give an animal something to eat that's not food, what does it do? It turns on you, and if it's angry enough, it'll attack you. I want food, not pearls. And it gets angry, and it, and it rips you up. And there's an application here for how we communicate the gospel. May it be that if people reject the gospel, let them reject it for the sake of the message, not because we're, we're being idiots in how we communicate it. You know, not because they can't stand us. We need to be wise in how we communicate the truth. If we're not careful, Jesus is saying people will turn on you. And here's the even greater thing. They will disdain the gospel itself. So we're not being good ambassadors of the gospel. When we're unwise in how we communicate it. And we know this by experience. I know it by experience. I've communicated in very unhelpful ways at times. Especially when I was a younger Christian. And, and man, I wanted to get right to it, man. You know, it's the whole thing like, where, hey man, if you die today, where would you go? You know, bam, you're right there. I mean, you're like talking about his soul in hell and eternal condemnation. And you're just boom. I mean, there's no like, hey, you know, there's no get to know you. There's no, it's just boom. And people get upset. They get angry. People that hold placards or put placards on or, or, or speak out of a bullhorn. You know, I'm not saying that's always wrong. I'm just saying generally it's probably unhelpful. And so we know this by experience. And Jesus tells us to be careful how we do this. We are to exercise caution. We're to be sensitive to the amount of truth or to the way that we deliver that truth to people. What we need is timely words spoken aptly. People need to feel our love and friendship, not feel that they, are, that they are projects that we are just trying to finish. So just to be clear, Jesus isn't telling us to avoid speaking the truth about God and sin and repentance. He's just saying exercise caution when you do this. You're giving a pearl to a swan. And when that happens, they don't like that. 
People tend to be either all truth or no love or all love and no truth. And, 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 and you got a bent. You've got a bent there in that direction. And Lloyd-Jones says this, living like this is one of the most difficult things in life and thus one of the last things Christians attain to. That is living with maturity, learning how to do this well. And Jesus gives us these commands because he knows we can get there. All right? So there's hope for us. Now, how do we get rid of judgmentalism and more move toward people in love? As we've said, we get rid of the log that's in our eye before we're in a condition to help other people. And here's the thing. If you judge yourself first, you won't rush to judge other people. But we can't stop there, okay? We need gospel. We can't stop with self-examination because otherwise we'll be so self-defeated and so condemned by our own sin that we won't have any motivation to help other people. And we will say this, who am I to judge anybody for anything at any time? I mean, we'll just become so defeated. So we need something more. The answer, and here it is, the answer to self-righteousness is not ultimately self-condemnation. It's gospel awareness. It's gospel awareness. It's knowing who you are in Christ. Self-righteousness always, always, always flows from an insecurity about the gospel. But if I know that Jesus loves me, this I know. If I know that Jesus loves me with a plank coming out of my eye, then I have new motivation. I don't have to try to feel or make myself better by sinfully comparing myself with others. Jesus loves me plank and all. And then I don't have to condemn or self-righteously judge another Christian to somehow, in a perverse way, make myself feel better. Robert Murray McShane says, For every one look you take at yourself, we need self-examination. But for every one look you take at yourself, you need to take ten looks at Christ. We need to remember that there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. We need to remember that what Christ has done for us We need to remember that that's the only thing ultimately that will give us humility and holiness. The only thing that will give us the courage to approach others. The gospel, here's what the gospel does. The gospel shows you that you are the most sinful person in your life. That's what the gospel shows you. The gospel shows you that we are a nasty piece of work. But by God's grace, we have been redeemed. We've been washed. We've been cleaned We are legally righteous before him. Now, in all this, we see a phenomenal picture of the gospel because, listen to this, Jesus casted his pearl before unbelieving and hostile sinners. And what what did we do with it? We trampled it underfoot. We turned and ripped him to shreds. Literally. We crucified King Jesus. And Christ is the ultimate pearl of great price. And he was trampled underfoot by his father, by God, who turned his back on him and ripped his son to shreds. For our sin, Jesus endured the wrath of God. And because of that, that's what enables us to avoid judgmentalism and stand in the good of the gospel Friends, the reality is this. If you get that, then you get what Matthew 7 is really about. Not moral relativism and tolerance. This is a profound passage. 
And may God help us to see how this should change our life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Press it into our hearts deeply through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.